to Brio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trigg-Hauker, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. In research, methods inform how knowledge is gained. The methods someone uses are often at the core of how they think about the world. And in Peace Research, there's room for a wide range of methods. Increasingly, that can even mean mixing methods. Today, I'm joined by Jürgen Karling. Jürgen is a research professor at PRIO, where he's also co-director of the PRIO Migration Center. His background is in human geography, and he's also drawn on work within other disciplines, including anthropology, economics, and sociology. He currently leads the project Future Migration as Present Fact, which is funded by a consolidator grant from the European Research Council, one of the most prestigious types of research funding which is awarded with scientific excellence as the only criterion. And in Jürgen's case, the mixing of research methods plays a key role. Today, we'll talk about what methods are and what kind of benefits there are to mixing methods, as well as possible pitfalls to avoid. Welcome back to the podcast, Jürgen. It's nice to be in person in the studio with you. Um, so we're going to talk about mixed methods today, and this is one of, I think, one of your passions, and it was your idea, so I'm really excited to hear your thoughts. Um, a couple years ago, you received a consolidator grant from the European Research Council, um, which is one of the most prestigious types of research funding, and you are working on this project, Future Migration as Present Fact. So this is one of the, the projects that you're doing that uses mixed methods. And we're going to go into that a little bit more in our second part, um, but maybe you can just contextualize... Uh, your interest in mixed methods and partly relating to this this really amazing project that you're doing. Yeah, so I've I've been a researcher uh, here at Prio actually for about 20 years now, and I've done research with both qualitative and quantitative methods um, sort of back and forth over that period, um, but always felt that, you know, it should be possible to take this one step further. So that was really part of the inspiration for this um consolidated grant project that I wanted to to see you know how mixed methods could really be used to uh, to advance theoretically as well so Jürgen before we actually get into the meat of this topic and before we get people a little bit too lost maybe what are mixed methods so in general when we talk about mixed methods we tend to think about a mixing of qualitative and quantitative approaches uh, so that could be, for instance, people doing a large-scale survey of, say, you know, a thousand respondents or five thousand respondents, and then also doing in-depth interviews with a smaller number of people, say twenty or thirty, and then combining those two in in the analysis. But it's not it's not a given that it has to be like that. In the sense that um, you can also mix methods, for instance, within a, a qualitative approach. So some people, for instance, would do participant observation and also interviews and maybe focus groups and other qualitative methods that would bring something different to the to the same project. But in general, I think most people do associate it with this um, crossing of the boundary between the, the mainly qualitative and mainly quantitative approaches. And that's how I think of it as well. And on previous episodes, I've alluded to this a little bit of a divide between quantitative and qualitative, and that there are a lot of researchers that consider themselves pretty much only quantitative or only qualitative. Um, 
And of course, sometimes they work together, but not always. Um, but when we actually talk about methods, um, let's get even more kind of specific for people who really don't do research. Why is your method important when you're a researcher? <laughs> so I guess, I mean, the, the method defines basically what you do when you're, when you're doing research. Um, and qualitative and quantitative are, are just, in a way, shorthand labels for uh, broad approaches in how we uh, try to make sense of, of society, if that's by basically by counting things, so the quantitative approach, or interpreting things. Um, and <laughs> basically, we, we don't have the capacity to, to really interpret um, thousands and thousands of individual circumstances, for instance, so that means uh, working with, with a smaller number. And for instance, approaching people with more of an open mind uh, in the sense of listening to their experiences, asking them questions, improvising along the way, and try to form an understanding of, of their lives, their circumstances, and without having decided on a, a set of questions to ask them beforehand. So those those are sort of the the main characteristics of the of the two approaches. And when we talk about mixed methods, uh, it's worth sort of pausing to think what exactly is it that's being mixed? Because it could be the that the the data is mixed, or it could be that the analysis is mixed in the sense that you do you use two different forms of analysis. And you could even do that on the same piece of data or same set of data. So for instance, I uh, imagine that I wanted to do a study of um, gender relations in the Bible. Um, then I could imagine one part of the project um, reading the text and really looking at how are men and women portrayed um, in the text and what circumstances and what qualities are attributed to them and so on. And then maybe also do some kind of statistical analysis of the mentions of men and women throughout the you know thousands of words um, of text and in what context they come up and um, how they're sort of statistically connected to other topics and, and so on. So in that case, two very different analysis, but the same data set and in fact, no data collection because the data is already there. Um, but I think most of the time their mixed methods involve sort of two two strands or, or approaches, if you will. One, which is collecting qualitative data and analyzing it pretty much in the same way as you would have done in a purely qualitative project. And then a quantitative side of the, the project also following a, a standard approach, but then at some point um, connecting the two. And how you connect them, of course, is essential to whether it makes sense to do a, a mixed method study at all. Mm. And uh, some of the reading that you kindly gave me before we recorded uh, pointed out that it could also be applying, uh, for example, a qualitative approach to quantitative data, which I thought was really interesting. And they also posited that maybe you could apply a quantitative approach to qualitative data. Um, so maybe you, you could talk a little bit about that, because I thought that was interesting, not not uh, only doing two different methods, but actually approaching it in a different way. Yeah, so that's, um, I would say that's more of a sort of niche approach and um, especially in terms of quantitative analysis of qualitative data that's something that's expanding mm -hmm. a lot because of you know advances in computer science and so on that makes it possible to for instance work with text uh, in in new ways 
But um, one example from my own research of sort of crossing the boundary in that way is that I've um, I, I do a lot of, of um, survey research, and I've been interested in using other people's survey questions as data, in a sense. So looking critically at exactly how have questions been posed. So in my case, it's been questions about how people think and feel about the prospect of migrating. So questions like, would you like to migrate to another country? Or have you seriously considered migrating to another country during the past year? Or um, where do you think you'll be living in five years' time? So questions like that sort of address the same uh, or serve similar purposes uh, in a survey. But I've used the questions themselves to try to get further in the sense of... um, theorizing what exactly is it that we're asking about? What are those thoughts and feelings that people might have in relation to to migrating in the future? So there I've done a sort of a, a qualitative analysis, not of the, of the quantitative data, but of the quantitative methodological tools. Hmm. Um, yeah, so that's one, one, way in way, one way in which I've crossed the boundary, not, um, not by using two sets of, of data, but taking sort of my, my qualitative perspective into the realm of, of quantitative research. And so why do researchers do this? Uh, what are the benefits? And as specifically in that example, because that sounds really interesting to me, but um, what have you found at least to be the benefits of doing this? Well, um, let me start in, in general terms where it said that um, you know, the main motivations for, for combining qualitative and, and quantitative methods is either to... Um, seek sort of stronger confirmation of findings or to exploit the complementarity of the two. So the first sort of confirmation-focused approach is what's all sometimes also called triangulation, the idea that by um, using different methods or approaching a topic from different angles, you can sort of locate the truth more accurately. Um, that um, I think to some extent is falling out of fashion in the sense that people increasingly value um, different methods for the different kinds of insights that they bring. So then that's more a question of, of complementarity. You simply get different information from regression analysis of, of survey data than you do from um, analysis of, of in-depth interviews. And they can be part of telling the same overarching story. Um, but it's not as simple as you know. Together, they they um, give you sort of the truth mm. with 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 greater accuracy. They just tell a, a richer story. So that those are sort of the two the two main um, motivations that are discussed in the in the literature. But I think it's uh, it's useful to expand a bit from that. You can think, um, especially I think for for graduate students, there's huge value in mixed methods for the sake of learning that by engaging hands-on with both kinds of of methods you really prepare for making good methodological choices later in your in your career mm-hmm. so so that the learning aspect of it i think is is important and also in my own experience i mean i mentioned that i've been here at Purdue for for 20 years and i've i've really enjoyed it and have no plans of of leaving and feel that it's been so varied and i think one one reason for that is that i've gone back and forth between 
different methodologies and, and often combine them. So in terms of of uh, bringing sort of diversity to your own career, I think it's also a plus. And it also gives me sort of, um, intellectual satisfaction to feel that sort of friction between between two approaches, even if I'm only using one at a given point in time, for instance. Then one other reasons, reason I think why <laughs> researchers turn to mixed methods is because I think it's smart in the process of getting funding. <laughs> that um, many funders especially encourage interdisciplinary research, and even if they don't say mixed methods explicitly, it's often assumed that that's a plus. So I think you see a lot of research proposals that say, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to do that, and, and whether or not they use the mixed methods label, but I think many people do do that if they think that it can be justified. And so I, I remember some years ago, I, I was at a conference, migration conference, and I, I sat next to an, an economist at dinner and he said, well, you know how it works. You you call your friend who's an anthropologist and you, you write a, a proposal together and then you, you get the funding and you go and do your separate things. Aww. And of course, that's not <laughs> the the way in which this should work. Right. And, and I think also often reviewers will... We'll see through it if that's um, if that's the intent be- behind uh, a mixed methods proposal. Um, but I've, I mean, I've, I re- review a lot of funding applications as well, and I think a common weakness, and uh, even for projects that are only qualitative, is that people sometimes tend to go towards doing a little bit of everything. So you know, they do. They want to do focus groups and some interviews and participant observation and maybe some participatory approaches and some photo elicitation methods. And it just ends up being very fragmented. And it's not clear how good either one of those approaches will, will be or how they're going to work mm-hmm. together for some bigger purpose. Mm-hmm. That kind of brings me to to a set of questions about not only why you do this, but the way that it that it works. But I should mention that we crowdsourced a lot of these questions um, from people at Prio. And I think this is something that there's a lot of interest around. And I know a lot of people are already using mixed methods, but um, I wouldn't say there is skepticism, but I think that people aren't always sure how they should do it, which we'll address in the next episode. Um, but also the why and and just, I guess, the benefits, the drawbacks, and yeah, some of the pitfalls that we're going to discuss. And so yeah, like I said, that brings me to my next question, which is um, a lot of research uh, might claim to be mixed methods, like you say, but um, as one of our researchers pointed out, sometimes one method is overwhelming the other. Um, and is that a problem? And also, how can you avoid that problem if it is? <laughs> Actually, I don't think it's a, it's a problem to have an uneven division between them. And I... Um, in preparation for this, I went back and looked at um, my own work and how I've actually been combining methods, um, and I created an overview that um, that we'll link to in the in the notes for this episode, um, where I looked at you know what what are the different ways in which I've combined methods and how how is that linked to collaboration with with others also, and I found that actually although looking back at my sort of research career as a whole, I feel it's been pretty much 50-50 qualitative and, and quantitative. It's rarely been that in a single publication. 
Hmm. So it's some have been purely quantitative, some have been purely qualitative, some have been mixed. And very often in those mixes, there's been, you know, a 30-70 split or something like that, rather than a 50-50 or even a 90-10 split. And I think all of those uh, can work um, if you are deliberate about how and why you you do it. I think part of the problem is you know, flagging something as this is a mixed method study, and then it seems as if they've just you know done what they prefer to do and then tacked on something from sort of the other side um, to make it a mixed method study, but without really um, having a clear idea of the of the the way in which the two are going to be integrated. Mm. I think maybe it's um, easiest to do that for for quantitative researchers who, for instance, know that they want to do a survey and then they say that uh, and we'll do some qualitative interviews as well um, because the threshold for doing that seems pretty low. Um, but I think in order for, for that integration to really work, you do need a critical mass of qualitative data and you do need um, experience in sort of soliciting the kind of information that can really be interpreted rather than just reported. Um, and also you, you need the skills to do that. Because I think that um, it's very unsatisfactory when you see um, sort of a, a small qualitative component that's used just as if it were sort of um, open-ended answers in a, a survey. So hmm. people said this and that, and then you just report that in in your publication and you think that, well, now I've done something qualitative as well. So one example where we combined survey data and um, in-depth interviews, qualitative data, was several years ago together with two colleagues here at Peru, Marta Bivan Ardal and, and Cindy Horst. We were working on a, a project about um, migrants' money transfers to their countries of origin, remittances. And we had survey data among, uh, collected among immigrants in Norway. And Marta and Cindy also did interviews among um, Pakistani and Somali migrants. And I, so I was concentrating on the survey data and we found, or I found in the, in the analysis of the survey data that curiously, um, household finances didn't have any effect on remittance behavior among Somalis. So even if they had trouble making ends meet, they, they uh, remitted frequently. Um, and it didn't make a difference in a way whether or not they could actually afford it. Mm. Whereas among the Pakistanis, um, household finances did make a difference. So it was seemed as if um, they would remit if they had the money to to spare, but otherwise they wouldn't. Mm. And conversely, we found that people's job situation mattered among Somalis, but not among Pakistanis. So these were sort of survey findings that, you know, we could have reported them, um, but I would have had trouble making sense of them if we didn't also have the qualitative material around it. Mm. So what we discovered then through sort of combining the qualitative and quantitative was that among Somalis, um, the the sort of dynamics of remittance sending is very often that they receive urgent requests from people who are in some kind of crisis and they need money now to get out of harm's way because of the conflict or to um, pay for uh, surgery at a hospital or something that is really quite urgent. Mm. 
Um, and those requests could come from relatively distant relatives, but that you still have an obligation to. So there is this wide network of people who could potentially ask you for remittances. And they then, of course, make decisions about who who to ask. And whether or not people are working is something that they might might know. Mm. Um, so they would tend to you know, direct the requests at people who are known to, say, work in Norway. Right. Um, and But they wouldn't know if that person actually <laughs> has um, money to spare or if they're struggling to pay the rent or, or whatever. But the, the, the sort of moral obligation of helping people in need is so strong that that overrides the sort of need to pay the rent. Hmm. Whereas among the Pakistanis, the dynamics was completely different in the sense that people valued remittance setting more as a, a, tr- a cultural tradition. And they knew that, you know, the, the money was actually symbolically important in order to preserve those transnational ties. But it wasn't as if their relatives would go starving if they didn't send money. Right. So so then it was more like, you know, if we have the money, then we we send remittances and we'd like to bring, you know, we enjoy taking our children along to the to the remittance sending office. So they learn, you know, about the, the way in which we uh, support each other in our culture and, and so on. But it was... Since it was more of a sort of discretionary cultural practice, finances played a different role. So to me, in my own career, that's one of the prime examples of how combining qualitative and quantitative data has led to insights that we wouldn't have had if we'd had only one side of the story. I have two examples of how I've combined in a very unequal way, um, which I think is also fine, fine to do. So uh, I did one one project on um, family migration histories, and in particular, women who migrated without their children. So women from Cape Verde in West Africa, where I've done a lot of research, who left their children behind when they migrated. And I uh, have two anthropologists, friends and colleagues, who've actually done overlapping research on the same topics. So we decided to write an article together, and it was you know, 90% qualitative in the sense that everything we had done specifically for this article was ethnographic fieldwork and, and interviewing. But the article contains uh, a table based on demographic data from a survey in Kipford, where I used my sort of background in demography to extract data from that survey to show the living arrangements of children at different ages in Kipford. So for instance, showing that a quarter of 11 to 14-year-olds didn't live with any of their parents. so And that was a kind of contextualizing information that um, really gave some backing to our argument that child fostering is so common that that in its own right is not sort of a source of stigma. And that makes a big difference to how you know, women leaving their children with a relative and going abroad is viewed in Cape Verde. So in that sense, it added just a tiny bit of information to the to the article, but it did require some quantitative expertise to be able to to find the data and present it in a way that was um, targeted to what was needed in that context in that article. Hmm. And then conversely, I I did a um, I wrote a book chapter some years later on 
chain migration and um, based on on survey data where there were interesting questions about whether or not migrants had received requests from people in their country of origin to help them migrate and how they had responded to those requests. So I, I did a, a purely quantitative analysis of, of the survey data. And although the project uh, as a whole also contained lots and lots of, of qualitative data, the qualitative interviews hadn't really focused on that issue. So there wasn't much to, to gain from, from bringing that data into the analysis. But I wouldn't have asked those um, questions, or I wouldn't suggest bringing them into the survey in the first place if I didn't have my ethnographic experience of seeing how these requests are made and responded to in in immigrant communities. So thinking of chain migration as a process of sort of making or not making requests and dealing with those requests in different ways was something that came straight out of my, my qualitative experience, even if I used it for an article that was entirely quantitative. Okay, so we're going to round off here. And in our second episode, we'll get into the how and the nitty gritty. But what do you think are the greatest pitfalls in mixed methods research? And how can they be prevented or overcome? One pitfall is, as I mentioned earlier, this tendency to want to do a little bit of everything, which is, uh, I think, which we see a lot in research proposals, and which I think is often unhelpful. So it's better to to be deliberate and doing a few things and doing them well. Um, and I think one of the things that's um, added, as I mentioned earlier, is you know, a few qualitative interviews to give some some color and substance, um, but which might not work very well as qualitative data or qualitative analysis if it's not done with a critical mass of, of information and, and the proper analytical experience. But also when people add a survey, and I think that's something that um, seems sort of doable to add, even for people who've worked mainly with qualitative methods or people who've worked mainly with large-scale statistical data sets. Um, because doing a survey also seems relatively straightforward. You design a questionnaire and you go out and ask people questions and you analyze the results. But I think that's also something that's hugely underestimated, the the work it takes to really develop a good survey instrument and also everything that comes afterwards. But I think especially the all the work it takes to really make sure you're asking the right questions and asking them in the right way and the right order and so on um, is, is often underestimated. So it's a case of something that's easily seems to be doable to add, but where the the cost of doing it well is is often underestimated. I was warned against uh, surveys many times as a master's student <laughs> that they were not as simple as they looked. <laughs> yes. And um, I think another pitfall is not um, setting aside sufficient resources um, and time for combining the two or linking the two. Mm. So that's actually something I've experienced in two of, two of the biggest mixed methods projects that I've been part of. One, we started with a qualitative and then wanted that to inform a survey the other one, we did it the other way around. And both suffered from the same problem that we just didn't have the time and capacity to analyze and learn from the first uh, part of data collection before we had to develop the second. So uh, it does take a lot of resources to uh, to make the connection. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's well spent, uh, but it just needs to be planned for at the outset. And I think another pitfall actually is just that you easily end up with too much data 
um, <laughs> whether or not you're one person or a team, getting your head around uh, a lot of qualitative and a lot of quantitative data is easily more than you can you can manage. And then even if the project was designed to be mixed methods, you then might end up in a situation where nobody actually does the mixing. <laughs> well, we will get into more of this in the second episode with the how, and I'm really looking forward to that. But for now, thank you very much, Jürgen. Thank you. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trick Hauger. Music by Mark Lennon.